Okay, my name is Bill, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Bill. You know, it took me about 30 plus years to say that, and it has a lot of relevance to how. 30 years of drinking, and then I got into 12-step work because of my wife and my son, and joined Al-Anon and a group of parents who have children who are addicts. And the funny thing about that, I started to practice a 12-step program, didn't know much about it back then, about 14, 15 years ago, threw myself into it, and worked the program, but was still drinking. It's kind of a paradox to work a 12-step program and still drink, but was for co-alcoholics. So I was being honest, open, and willing up to a point. And then on December 4th, 1988, I had my last drink and started to get sober with alcoholism. And it took me two or three years working a pretty intensive program in AA before I could really feel comfortable and honestly and openly and willingly admit that I am an alcoholic. In fact is, when I was in Al-Anon, I was writing a book about acceptance and alcoholism. <laughs> and I think that's one of the ways I try to justify my drinking and also try to get out of it, as we'll see. I think a lot of coming to honesty, openness, and willingness is a paradoxical process. A lot of our honesty, we grow in honesty through dishonesty, through op in openness through closeness, in willingness through unwillingness. So I, I am here, and what, I, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to you in a number of ways. I'm going to talk to you primarily as a recovering alcoholic, and I can say that now. I'm also going to talk to you as a bit of an academic. So if you're bored, that's my fault, that's me, and also as a clinical person. So I'll, ex I'll share my experience, strength, and hope to try to concretize my talk, uh, be somewhat academic and uh, clinical. What I propose to do is the following, that's what's up my sleeve, I never quite know what's going to come out of my sleeve because I don't know how our higher power is going to call me forth. But I propose to do the, uh, the, the following, first of all, talk very briefly about why, how, honesty, openness, and willingness, the theme of this conference, is so important. And what is how? I want to talk about what is honesty, openness, and closeness. And then how do we achieve it? How do we come to it? How do we grow in it? I suspect we never achieve it. We're always achieving it. And then what are some of the obstacles, especially some of the obstacles that are relevant to us as doctors? I think we doctors have special obstacles. I want to talk about a couple of them. Then I want to talk about how we maintain and foster our how, and then some of the consequences of how, and a summary and, uh, a summary and conclusion. So that's what I'm going to talk about. Okay, first of all, why is how? Why is being honest, open, and willing so important? And I suspect all of you know why. But it also states in the big book, way back on page 570, this is the only quote I'll give you, in Appendix 2, there's a page and a half called Spiritual Exercises, and it makes a very succinct statement about how. To quote this author, we find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness 
are the essentials of recovery. But these are indispensable. It's a very powerful statement. They're indispensable. They're essential to recovery. It's the sine qua non. We have to have that. And if we are, it will lead to spirituality, to our higher power, to more than but related to me, which is the essence of our program of getting sober. So we can say that how is the power base, the core motivator, the central motivator, it's the bridge to recovery. Without it, it won't work. So how do we do it? That's how we do it. We try to grow in honesty, openness, and willingness. So there's an implicit promise that if we practice this, we will recover. Not just abstain. Keep in mind, our reason for working the program is not to stop drinking or stop using. It's to get sober. Of course, you can't have one without the other. It's to become sober, to recover. So there's a promise there. There's an empowerment there, if we're honest, etc., that gives us the freedom not only from alcoholism, but freedom to grow for and in sobriety. Okay. And I'm not sure if all addicts can do that. I think of my son, and I hope he can. He was sober for about two years. He's 28 now. And he's on again. And I think it says in the big book, too, maybe not all people are able. I hope I'm wrong in that. I hope I'm wrong. But in any case, what I try to do is love people and accept them no matter if they're drinking or not. I prefer that they don't. Okay. What is how and how do we achieve how? First of all, they're uh, interrelated. When we're open, we're more honest, we're more willing, and vice versa. But one of the main themes I'd like to propose is that we come to being more open and honest and willing by just this opposite. I'd like to propose a so-called principle of opposites. It's sort of a Jungian concept. There's a dialectical process that we grow through the opposite. What do I mean by that? Mm. That we come to more life through death. The death is a summons that calls us to live more. In weakness, power reaches perfection. We have to, especially spiritually, we often have to break down in order to break through. She said we have to be powerless in order to come to more power. Or to put it another way, spiritually we never get it. The most important things we never get. We can get satisfied physically, that's only temporary. We can achieve functionally by our ego. We can achieve goals. We make so much money. Uh, we can achieve that. But the most important things, the realities, the experience that are permanent, that last, that gives us meaning, that gives us direction, we never get. Yet I think there is the false myth, the false belief, there is the illusion that there's a way of getting it. Uh, that if I... Even in, even in especially mass media, if I use this laundry detergent, I'll smile like an idiot the rest of my life. I'll get it. I'll, I'll be happy. Yeah? Or if I smoke this cigarette and get on this horse, I'll have a sense of nirvana, as stupid as that may sound. 
or if I read all the books on recovery and spirituality and go to two meetings per day, then I'll get it, then I'll be happy, then I'll be at peace, then I'll be sober, that if-then proposition. No, I don't think that works. I don't think we're born to be happy, we're born to be peaceful. I'm not saying we're born to be unhappy either, or not at rest. I'm simply saying that we consistently, constantly, perpetually grow in happiness, which implies unhappiness. We grow in peace, which implies restiveness and restlessness. We grow in sobriety, and there's always the demons of drunkenness lurking in the shadows, more or less for all of us. So, as we say in 12-step work, uh, we're looking for progress, not perfection. We're imperfectly growing in perfection. And I think that occurs, too, in being honest, open, and willing. And our dishonesty can help us be more honest, and so forth. So, in light of that basic principle, we grow dialectically. We grow with a polar tension. We can't have light without darkness, strength without weakness. I want to talk a little bit now about what is honesty slash dishonesty, what is openness slash closeness and willing and unwillingness and willlessness. Honesty, a few words about that. First of all, honesty comes from the Latin. It's my academic stuff here, huh? Honus or honestum, which means honor. It's an interesting uh, etymology honor, implying that when I'm honest, I keep my honor, I keep my character, my worth, and when I'm dishonest, I begin to lose my honor, I begin to diminish, and for me, personally, and I'll talk more about this later, it engenders shame in me, and a wonderful definition, I I think, of shame is the following, is to be seen as painfully diminished, I simply want to disappear and shrink. And that's a biggie for me, and I think for a lot of us. So when I can be honest, it tends to keep my honor and tends to help me to shrink less and to be less shameful, worth more. So, or conversely, honestly means to what? To refuse to lie, to steal, deceive, to live in an illusion. And the etymology of illusion means illudere, means to mock, to make fun of to deceive, to laugh at. So I don't want to live in that. I want to be honest. But we are dishonest, particularly when we were drinking. And now that we're sober, we still tend to be dishonest. It's always there. And the key, of course, is to be honest primarily with myself and also with others, but primarily of myself. Okay. Now, for, for me, how did I come through to honesty? And usually it means for for many of us to hit a so-called bottom or to experience the painful consequences or to uh, lose our license or our license is in jeopardy or to have an intervention done us where all mirrors are put up in front of us or to come close to death or to lose the most important realities, particularly people. I used to know a, a, a patient came in one day is relevant to honesty, yeah? and he was a sex offender, I do a lot of that stuff with sex addicts, and I asked him about his drinking, he said, yeah, I drink, I says, how much you drink, he says, ah, a couple drinks a day, most people would stop there, and I says, well, how large are those drinks, and he says, each one is 32 ounces, 
He would walk around all day with a plastic cup with vodka. He's <laughs> uh, being, kind of being dishonest, I might add. Huh? For me, coming to honesty was on, when I took my last drink on December 4th, 1988. I was always, it was very important for me to be honest and to be open and willing, except with my drinking. I have to be in, in, in my field, actually. But I can recall going to the opera with my wife, and right before we enter the Benedim here, she said, did you have a couple drinks, or did you have a drink? I says, no. And that was a turning point for me, that dishonesty. I could feel myself melt. The shame was overwhelming. I missed the whole opera. I just was horrible. And that's the last time I drank. And then I went from Al-Anon to AA and started my, my recovery. But for me, my dishonesty engendered honesty. As we know that honesty is correlated with step one, that we admit we are powerless and unmanageable, and so forth. So, I think also to be honest and open and willing, particularly honest, uh, we have to be humble. And that's particularly hard for us, I think for everyone, but maybe more so for doctors. Humble comes from the Latin humus, which means earth. We have to be down to earth. We have to be sensitive to what's going on here and now, not so much out of our minds. Huh? To be honest, there has to be, as William James says, which uh, Wilson quotes in, in the big book, the only psychologist he quotes, and the only psychiatrist he talks about is Jung, true good people. There has to be a deflation of ego. I have to go beyond my ego state, my rationality, and begin to, to surrender to a higher power. That I'm not self-sufficient, I don't have all the answers, that I can't do it myself. I know for me, for one, that was very, very difficult. I was always a one-man band, and still tend to be that. So, to be humble, to be humbled, to be down to earth, helped me to own up to what is, to claim and name what I was doing. And that happened through my being dishonest, which engendered my shame. Open-mindedness. Open-mindedness. Again, I think a lot of open-mindedness, particularly the starting point and the whole process, comes through being closed-minded. And that oftentimes refers to step two, can I be open to more than I am, to reality that can restore my sanity, not that I will restore my sanity. Can I be open or obedient? Ob aldire, can I listen to more than my own voice? Can I genuinely trust that somebody else may know more than I? Is there a higher power than I? Can I learn to be spiritual, go beyond my individuality to being interconnected? Okay. However, we are closed and can be closed. Huh? We tend to be only open, particularly when we're drinking or going dry drunks, only to our own framework. And what fits in within our framework, or at least my framework, is fine. But to be open, to be, have a ready availability to what is, takes a lot of courage and humility, at least for this doctor. And as we know, alcohol and other drugs filter out reality, engender closedness. So can I have a ready availability to obadiri, to listen to and act on the truth, not only in my own truth, 
but the truth of others, the truth of my higher power. That for me is being open. Being open means too that I am limited, that I am powerless. I can't do it by myself. I again am not self-sufficient. I cannot save myself. As one very good author in the title of his book says, I am not God. Again, that's contrary to being a doctor, I think. We're programmed differently. So can I have that faith, that ready availability, that acceptance of the thing that goes beyond me, the knowledge that goes beyond me? Can I trust others? So for me, again, I was open in most ways, again, except for my drinking, which then impacted on other opennesses. And my main way I wasn't open was not so much in my field, in my everyday life, but in my life of intimacy. I would call myself a functional or a book I wrote called The Normal Alcoholic. I look normal to everybody, but in the backstage of my life, I was rather closed. I was only present up to a point. And after my second or third vodka on the rocks, I would mellow out. And it's very difficult to talk to somebody who's sleeping. That, that was me. Okay. And it's difficult to be open to the spiritual too, which is essential because I think our culture, our mass media is very anti-spiritual. In my own field now, just recently, in the past three, four years, we're beginning to become a little more open to the spiritual. We never were. A little open. We never were open to the spiritual in psychology. And now we're starting, you see in the textbooks, a page or two or three on the spiritual. And I think the reason that's being done is because it works. They're starting to see, they're starting to study odd people like groups of nuns, that nuns live longer lives and overall healthier lives those weird nuns, and they wonder why. Maybe the spiritual has something to do with it. So the professional field is starting down in Duke University, Harvard, so forth. They're beginning to study the, the power of prayer, of living a spiritual life in terms of health. But again, the, the, the mass media tends to make fun of and it tends to be closed. So in, in many respects, to practice a 12-step program to grow in the spiritual life as well as the psychological, social, and physical, um, we have to be in many respects countercultural. I think that's what we mean sometimes when you hear some people in meetings say those earthlings out there. You sort of have to be countercultural. You have to be have one foot in the culture and one foot out of the culture. And of course when we're dancing to different music to some extent, when we're counterculture, we're always going to get consequences. We're always going to get flack for doing that because we're not meeting the norm. Okay. Willingness. Willingness means to make the decision, to take a stand, to have the intent or to consent, huh? Huh? to decide that there's more than I am, that there's a way to recover. Or correlated with step three, I think I'll let God, I'll turn my life and will over to God, not just to me. There has to be what they call sometimes a metanoia, a turning about, a conversion, that no longer for me it meant, no longer will I take care of myself, but I begin to let other people take care of me, and especially my higher power. For me, I always took care of myself. I was the consummate codependent. My well-being depended on making other people happy. When you're happy, unhappy. And when you're unhappy, I'll do everything in my power to get you to feel good, to fix you. 
course, which is grandiose because no one has that power. Nobody can change anybody except within limits myself. So for me, I was very willing to take care of others, very willing to bring the spiritual to others. I used God as kind of a consultant. God helped me, Buddha helped me, Confucius helped me. But I didn't really surrender, turn over, until I started to practice the 12 steps. And not only let God guide me, but it was much more risky for me to let God comfort me, care for me, love me. That was more threatening to me and much more helpful. But again, when we are drinking, and even when we're sober, we can be unwilling at times. We can be closed, stubborn, or willful. I have that control. Or will this? I just follow the flow. I can't take a stand. So for me, the breakthrough was to turn myself over, which I think it is for most of us. So as I said, it it took a long time. About four years practicing a 12-step program to get to the point where I was really ready and could really will and admit that I am an alcoholic. I always felt that I could do it. I could recall at meetings. I would say, I am alcoholic. In fact, as I talked to my sponsor about it, I said, I can't do that. It just doesn't fit. It doesn't sound right for, for me. Couldn't quite accept it. And, my, and some of you know him. My, my uh, sponsor is a guy by the name of Rex. I, he says, well, you don't have to do that. You just have to try to stop drinking and get sober. And why don't you say you're alcoholic? So for a long time, I says, my name's Bill and I'm alcoholic. Not an alcoholic. Now no, I can do that. And that was a big step throw for me. Huh? So, to, to be willing to go to meetings, etc., in spite of how I feel, was very, very important. And finally, I got to that point. I'd like to talk about, maybe a little more concretely now, huh? about some of the obstacles that are peculiar to us, I think, from my point of view, as doctors, and also how to achieve and maintain honesty, openness, and willingness. Huh? One of the key factors, at least for me, in being a so-called doctor, besides the usual ones that we all have, our idiosyncratic obstacles, and besides being an addict itself, which is the biggest, is being a doctor. That D can stand for a lot of things. Huh? Sometimes, a little tongue-in-cheek, I say that medical doctors are mostly divine, huh? or maybe mostly demonic, but that D can stand for divine or demonic. Huh? That divine to me means that, that there are a lot of expectations on us to have the answers, to be able to fix things, huh? and just make a mistake and see what happens. And some of us then can incorporate that grandiosity, that we have all the answers, or we must have all the answers, must be able to solve all people's problems. And I think that really impedes being honest, open, and willing. To see that there's a power, a reality, a spiritual force, a life greater than we are. And also, most of us are fairly smart. Huh? We look fairly good. Huh? We're fairly authoritative. We have a lot of answers. It makes it hard to, to be humble. Huh? So we kind of buy in, in terms of our graduate studies, huh? that we have that illusion of control. Huh? It's tough to admit but knowing we're alcoholic that we don't have the answers. Not only answers for others, but the answer ourselves. So I really respect the first time I went to a caduceus meeting, huh, 
to see all these doctors being so real, so humble, so open, so sharing, so honest, was really inspiring. Because that wasn't my usual experience of doctors of any type. So, once again, we are not God. We are not self-sufficient. We have to move away from this divine complex, this complex of divinity, this self-idolatry, to surrender to a higher power. The focus not just on others, but also on myself as well. And I think not all of us, but a lot of us, at least I, and I suspect I'm not the only one, another large obstacle for me, and something I struggled with for about eight, nine years, is that a lot of us are so-called what I call normal alcoholics. Normal alcoholics, which is very comparable to but a little different than functional alcoholics. So for, for myself, for example, I was um, fortunate, or maybe unfortunate, huh? never was in a rehab, never got into any trouble with the law, was probably almost as responsible when I was drinking when I am now, um, always took responsibility for my children, went to all the teachers' meetings, did everything. I was the responsible one. I was always the designated driver, for God's sake. Huh? Uh, so why in the hell would I stop drinking, for God's sake? Huh? My dysfunctionality, that is, I was very normal. Normal, from a sociological point of view, means that I'm plus and minus two sigma on the bell curve. It means that uh, uh, I get esteem. People admired me. Uh, it means that nobody, and to this day, I don't think anyone except my wife, and she almost goes overboard on it, thinks that I was, am an alcoholic to this day. Even if I tell them, they say, no, no you weren't. You're not. Right? So normal, and normal from a psychological point of view means that I can function, I can manage reasonably well, which I could. So why? What, what, what's the problem? I was normal, but I'm alcoholic. Alcoholic means I have an obs- obsessive concern and compulsive urge to drink, which has more negative consequences than positive. Means I thought about it. Hell, I, I would always go, to, always go to weddings and not drink. That's easy. I would always quit for Lent. That's easy. Because I always knew that I could start again. When I know the future, I can control the present. But I always went back. And I had a period of two or three years when I would try to stop. I stopped drinking for three, four, five months. Always come back to it. Always come back to it. Huh? So it's quite normal, but I was alcoholic. It sounds like an oxymoron. Huh? And I think that's very difficult for some of us. Huh? because it's much easier to deceive ourselves, to fool ourselves, because we are doing well. Where I failed was I was less than present than I could be, particularly to my kids and my wife, because she was drinking too, so we were both stoned. Huh? But especially to my kids, I'd be very responsible for them, but when I'd stop drinking, I would fade away. As we say, I was out to lunch. Huh? Uh, a very tr- uh, mundane but common uh, example of this is, is I can recall, um, I call all the time, I, I go to the theater a lot. Was, I, when I was drinking, I never got through a complete opera. So I would have a couple of uh, good, uh, nice, very dry with a lemon twist, vodka martinis, huh? Yep. And I would go feeling mellow, and then when I got there, I'd have another drink, and I would enjoy the first act. And the second act, I was sort of in my own world, and I'd sleep through the third act. I never saw a complete opera until I stopped drinking. 
So subtleties like that, but they're not so subtle because now I'm much more enriched. I'm a much more of a better person. I'm much more present. So for me, the big difference is being more present and more available to other people helping me as well as my higher power. So I think a lot of us can trick ourselves in being alcoholic but being too functional. We manage well, although not manage as well as we can, and that impedes our accepting, our being honest, open, and willing. Okay. Even a little more concretely now. How do we maintain and foster being honest, open, and willing? I want to focus on a couple of different things perhaps, but as you know, all of you know, you can tell me this. We we keep on working the program. The working the program is not just simply to get sober from alcoholism and in being sober, but it's a way of living. At least it is for me. We can be open to feedback from our sponsors, from people, God, self. And again, often the negative is our greatest opportunity because it slows us down. It calls us forth. It holds us accountable. It can engender strength when I face my demons. And for me... One of my obstacles is being a dry drunk. Now, dry drunk doesn't mean to be over, to be overpowering. Dry drunk means to go back into my codependent posture, to think that I can love people into health, that I can understand them, listen to them, process their feelings, and they will come to see the light. Of course, the light is my light. Uh, a, a obstacle for me is when I begin to feel shame, when I begin to shrink, when I begin to isolate. They're symptoms for me. But how, so for me to accept that and to grow from that is a big factor. What I'd like to talk about here on how to maintain and foster is halt. The two meanings of halt. We all know halt, huh? When we're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. I'm going to talk a little bit briefly about that, but then another meaning of halt, my own meaning, which is helpful for me. So when we're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, for me that's an opportunity to listen. It's an opportunity for growth. It's speaking to me. Can I, my willing to slow down and be open? I'm too hungry. How can, and for me, it used to be when I used to get hungry or angry, and I was never angry in an explicit way. I was angry in a passive-aggressive way. When I'm lonely, when I feel alone, when I, when I yearn for somebody to be close to me, to understand me, when I was tired, how would I take care of myself? Huh? I would check in with God, I would check in with people, but ultimately I would go to my vodka. That, that, that was my lover. If you watch, if you watch yourself, and I used to observe myself, I remember I wrote a book while I was drinking on my alcoholism, huh? I observed myself, how I make love to that vodka martini. I, I would pour it and, and, and caress it and smell it and taste it and savor it. That was my higher power. It's not anymore, thank God. Huh? So. So for me to, to listen, to stop, to halt, and to see those weaknesses as opportunities to engender strength is very important. Another meaning of halt, which I want to spend a little more time on, them, is that halt for me is an acronym which means to halt, to stop and hover. The A would be to attend and accept. The L would be to listen and learn. And the T, finally, would be to think and try out something. Let me say a little word about it, which I think can grow from 
honesty, openness, and willingness, and can engender honesty, openness, and uh, willingness. Huh? So for me, when I feel tired, when I feel anxious, again, when I feel shameful, when I feel that I'm shrinking, that I'm getting weak, uh, rather than reacting, rather than putting up a front, can I halt? That's what I immediately do. Instead of acting out, I try to act in. I try to bond with that inner community of love, my 12-steppers, those people who care for me, my higher power, myself, hopefully. I stop. I hover. What is going on? Then I attend. Attend. Attendere. I hold in. I hold to. And then I accept. I achipere. I take in. I embrace, admit, admitterate, descend in. So become in touch, to name, to claim, before I do anything. Then I listen. What are my feelings? What is my experience saying? What is my shame saying? What is my anxiety saying? My fear. I, I'm afraid. Uh, my kid's thinking about getting a job where he climbs towers three, four hundred feet high. Huh? I'd hate to see them do that when he has a hangover. Huh? I listen to my anxiety. Listen. I try to learn. What am I saying? And then I think. What can I do? Oftentimes I can't do a damn thing. I can pray. I bond. I ask for comfort, consolation, guidance. Oftentimes it's to accept. I know when I try to convince people of the truth, um, I'm putting fuel on, on the fire. I've learned uh, to say, well, if it were me, I would do this. I learned to give a point of view. I've learned that to say it once is enough. If I say it twice, I'm getting into trouble. If I say it three times, I am in trouble. But I know me. I'm motivated to press the point until they say, yeah, I get it, I get it. Huh? That's not me. That's not the good me. So I think and then I try out. Huh? So when I am shaky, I halt. And that helps me to be more honest, open, and willing. We already talked about, good, we already talked about how it works. And as we've seen, it's a dialectical process. Openness uh, comes from honesty and willingness. If I'm willing, I tend to be more open and honest, and so forth. That is, they're interrelated, and they motivate me to work the program. Some of the consequences of openness, honesty, and willingness. Well, the big book talks a lot about that, particularly in terms of the promises and all the stories. Huh? You can tell me about that. I won't talk about that. One of the biggest fact consequences for me in being open, honest, and willing and working the program is to grow in the life of virtue, the virtuous life, gear, strength. For me, it engenders character development. So for me, for example, if I had a gun point to me, I say I have grown in freedom, not only freedom from, but freedom for, more meaning, direction in life. Just as important or more, there's an inner sense of serenity, no matter what. And right now, objectively, my life is just as bad or worse than it's ever been in my life. That's a fact. It's a fact. And yet, I'm better off than I've ever been. And it may sound trite, but it's true. 
that is there is an inner serenity that nobody can mess around with nobody can take away and that is an incredible freedom there's also a hope a ready expectation for life to unfold not getting stuck that there's a broad vista that things will unfold I'm not stuck or fixated in one point of view I always had a belief but I've grown in faith now that I can truly accept that which is beyond my rationality huh? I've always been a Gnostic I've always tried to I still do that I still I try to figure things out if I can make rational sense out of it then I'll buy it I think that's part of being a doctor too and an academic huh? but now I'm growing in faith I can also live by and accept that which I can't explain that which I can't figure out that's been too a, a liberation grown in a lot of patience because of this program and how and the spiritual life huh? patience patio to, to, to suffer I can wait in love I don't have to force my time schedule on somebody else I can step back and help people grow at their rate I always did that in private practice but not in my private life particularly with people I care for my kids my wife I get antsy uh, I was very clever at cornering them uh, pressuring the truth on them that doesn't work more patient now that everybody has their own time I've grown in fortitude fortitude strength uh, to stand in love to be able to take a stand being a codependent I always uh, uh, would go the other way I would always try to be the consummate pleaser right? perhaps more than anything uh, I've learned to become a wounded healer or a compassionate person compatio uh, to be able to suffer with sufri means to bear to help people bear the weight of their life uh, and not try to fix them but to be compassionate and perhaps to grow older together in love my fellowship um, love for me as a codependent used to be do what's best for the other which meant fixing the other saving the other and there's some truth in that but I never followed the, the modern script of sort of the narcissistic way rather than the empathic way narcissistic way would say book out for number one huh? life is tough cut your losses and get the hell out huh? no huh? I think rather than love just being me or just the other love is oriented toward us love is oriented for me toward community what is best for us and that's sort of the guideline I follow now so good in quick summary and conclusions um said that how is essential to the program to be honest open and willing without that we won't grow into spiritual life the big book affirms that I think in order to do that there's a dialectical process to be open to our demons our demons can strengthen us if we face them and grow through our weakness we become stronger grow through our death our breakdown we can break through and come to more life that also means there has to be particularly for us the so-called doctors the guys who have it the ladies who have it has to be a deflation of ego in order to connect with a higher power a God the teachings of Buddha the fellowship but something beyond my individuality myself that I'm it's beyond me yet connected to me beyond me and within me so I have to be humble in a sense I think it's important to have a divine dependency that I'm a whole person but a part of the greater whole which I think is a big part of the spiritual life and finally how has helped me to find and not only find but live my raison d'etre my reason for being huh? and, and 
In some respects, my reason for being is something I learned in the second grade, how to do God's will. I have nuanced that a little bit, huh? which I won't do here. But that's what it comes down to, not my will, but God's will. Huh? And for me, it means uh, to live a virtuous life, huh? to be a good man. Thank you.